Welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Crampton, Chief Economist with the New Zealand Initiative. It is Wednesday morning here, and we are joined today by Martin Lubernick. He's Prof of Accounting and Economist at Victoria University, and he's expert in banking regulation. We've been hearing lots of calls for regulation of bank profits, for windfall profit taxes on banks. And Martin today had a column out in Newsroom walking through some of the things we might expect to happen were the government to go down this route. I'm also joined by my colleague, Dr. Bryce Wilkinson. So Martin, thank you for joining us. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you. So help, help me through this to start with. Are current profitability levels for banks out of line, a problem? What's going on? Well, the current profitability levels of the banks are in line with past profits, so you know it's not extortion, uh, extremely high or extremely low. So they're very stable in a way. They had a bit of a dip during two, the two thousand twenty years, you know, the two thousand twenty period with COVID, but they're you know recovering from that, and so they're back to their old levels. But we keep hearing headlines about record profits. So what's going on with that? Well, they're high because you know in the recent past they were low. So you know, looking at you know, two years ago, you know, comparing you know, past low profits to current profits, yes, you know, profits are high. But if you look at the history of profits of New Zealand banks, it's pretty stable. So they're not extremely high or excessive or so. It's kind of normal to have these high profits or relatively high profits, yes. So what then happens if we were to start to consider windfall taxes on bank profits? I understand there's been well, some push for this in parts of Europe, what are they seeing as some of the consequences? What would we see here if they were to go ahead with this? So one of the things that will happen or is likely going to happen is that the windfall tax imposed on banks will affect banks in the way that it will affect most producers of any other goods. And that is, you know, facing a higher cost of doing business. There's a very high chance that, you know, these businesses, call it banks, will charge the higher cost of doing business to their customers. And so... The, you know, it may look fine on the surface and say, well, you're going to tax banks because they make so, such high profits. That's all fair. But in the end, and that's shown from research as well, is that banks do charge that or pass on these additional costs of doing business to their customers. So what you end up is charging customers or uh, borrowers or you know people that work for, for good salaries, they end up paying that tax. So in a way, it's taxing, you know, the boring people here, the homeowners and businesses and so forth, which I think is kind of not the idea behind the bank. You know, you want to, or behind the governance initiative, the idea was to tax banks for their high profits, but in the end it, it all passes on to the customers who then end up paying the tax. Now suppose I were the government and I took your critique and said, okay, well, we'll find ways in regulation to stop them from doing that. So when the petrol excise rebate came in last year, there were worries that pass-through would be less than complete because of relative inelasticity in the short term on supply for fuel. And there was a lot of jawboning from the minister at that point saying, well, you guys better make sure that you pass this all the way through or we're going to do terrible things to you. And it wasn't quite specified what these terrible things would, would be. And they've got less ability to do that in petrol than they perhaps do in banks. But banks are incredibly regulated. So what sorts of levers might you expect the Reserve Bank to try pulling if they were trying to stop banks from passing through the extra tax on on over to con consumers well i think spain is an example there 
the government wants to impose an, a windfall profit tax, but they also include a, a ban on charging it through to their customers. But in the end, you know, in the bill or the tax bill will be higher for these companies. And so, you know, left or right, it's going to affect customers in the end anyway. And so given that the uh, demand for banking services in New Zealand is inelastic uh, and there's only a few suppliers of these services, there's a very high chance that banks can get away with that passing through to customers. Well, you raise an interesting point there around a smaller number of suppliers. The, the big Australian-owned banks are the primary ones. We do also have Kiwi Bank and then a whole pile of small well, New Zealand offerings and a few that have been foreign ones here that I think are being pushed into domestic registration that might encourage them to just leave the country instead. It has looked like we've got a lot of regulatory barriers that prevent other options from coming in. So New Zealand's already a small market. It makes it kind of a marginal offering for anyone that would have a fairly high fixed cost in setting up business here. But at the same time, there's all this innovation going on internationally of sort of thin banking options, no branches, just really interact with your bank via your phone. And we've not seen as much of that being picked up here. Does it look like there might be promising ways of encouraging more of those entrants if part of the problem is a fairly concentrated market here? Well, that's a good question. I think it's going to be very hard to enter or to promote competition in the banking market as it is. People are used to using their banks and nobody really complains about the services delivered. So there's what they call, you know, sticky customers. They don't go away. The banks are large and they, they serve many customers, which has you know many advantages for the banks themselves and also for the customers. And I think New Zealand financial system wants it that way. You know, a few very large banks that offer relatively cheap lending to the masses who are totally fine with the current situation. So you really have to rely for, you know, for an entrant to successfully enter the market, that entrant should offer something really new and better and faster and flashy. And I wonder if that's, you know, that will entice a large group of customers at the moment. You know, people are happy with their FPOS and and how transactions are going at the moment. So I don't see that there is a lot of demand for better services. So there may be, you know, some opportunities to, you know, say do open banking where people have portable bank accounts. But then I think, you know, you have to make sure that the entire system cooperates and all players work together. Because if it's only one bank offering that, it's not going to work. You know, I think we had a time that ANZ had its own FPOS terminals next to FPOS terminals of other (laughs) banks. And so... That's dysfunctional, you know, you ask the shopholders to have two terminals instead of a single one. And so you have to get the entire banking system on board to support open banking. And it may work, uh, and it will work, but then everybody has to agree. I think the situation in Europe is much easier because there we have real-time online transactions and you have portability of, of bank services. But that was imposed through Brussels, I think through a regulation. And regulations are top-down and banks have to comply with that or their directives, but they're pretty much top-down forcing the entire banking system to cooperate, which I think is, you know, which requires a heavy-handed regulator, which has the support of all the other European countries. And and then it will work, but getting all banks on board here in New Zealand is going to be, you know, an equally onerous stretch for the uh, Reserve Bank and the government to, to pull off. So if they can do it, great. But, you know, it needs the cooperation of all the banks. 
I love the idea in principle. I don't know whether there wind up being actual fish hooks in implementation that would make it actually really difficult for the banks to make it possible for accounts to be portable in that kind of way, or whether comments about it would be just more self-serving, kind of trying to prevent new entrants by claiming that it's just too technically difficult to come into compliance with that kind of a regime. What sort of costs seem to be involved in the European setup when they shifted that way? Uh, the systems complaint from banks is, a, is, a, is always one that they'll throw out to regulators, like, oh, our systems, you know, that's going to be difficult to implement. And so you have to see through that and ignore that, basically. You have to have a vision and say, this is what we want, and then coordinate to make, you know, as long as you as required to make it happen. It's, it's a matter of, of grit, persistence from the regulator to, to get there. Uh, so the, the comments from the banks will be like, you know, always, yeah, we have to adapt our systems. But I heard that in my years that I worked at, at the Dutch regulator, I heard that any time, every time. You know. So yes, you know, mm. it should be done. And where the banks complain, hmm, okay, fair enough. Well, there can be cases where the regulation imposes greater costs than the expected benefits. And it's trying to figure out then whether the costs that are presented by participants in the industry are the actual costs or whether they're somewhat inflated to try and prevent the removal of a barrier to entry. Yeah, okay, yeah. But all in all, I think if we move to a system like the one in Europe has where you have real-time online payments, that's going to save a lot. You don't have mm-hmm. to wait for a transaction. You can yep. buy a car straight away. I, I sold my car before I left here in, in Holland, and you know the money came through five seconds after I sold, uh, typed it in my... Um, my device and that's you know it facilitates business and doing business so yes you know the advantages are clearly there and i think it can be done but you have to have a persistent and you know a a regulator that really wants it and pushes through new zealand was world leading when the fpos system first came through i i'd moved here from canada or sorry i was in canada first and then in the u.s and then i came here and when I was in the U.S., everything was done by paper checks still. Got here in 2003, and I've never had a New Zealand checkbook. So at the time, we were well ahead of the game. I'm not sure that we still are. I think we're not, compared to my experiences with Europe. But it's not at the point that it is massively irritating, I think, yet. No. And that's kind of a bit of a pity. But I, I'm, I'm sure if people, say, people moving from Europe to New Zealand, if they enter the country and say, wow, you know, something really backward with your banking system, it needs some upgrading. It, it will happen, but it will take time. So get, getting back to where we kind of started from, where do you think all these complaints about bank profitability are then coming from if the returns on capital have been fairly constant? There'd yep. been that, that dip, but it's come and it's come back to where sort of historic levels. There'd been the work that Michael Odell had done showing that there's been fairly fairly stable return on equity over time. And it hasn't really seemed like there's any strong analysis underpinning the labor government's pushes on the banking sector. It's felt more like populism where they want to direct people's anger about high inflation to people who aren't them. Is that where you're seeing this coming from as well, or do you put it somewhere else? I think there is a misunderstanding about how the banking system works in the world and in New Zealand. Banking systems worldwide, they they favor large banks. The regulation is such that they favor large banks. Bank, large banks can diversify easier. They can move to other countries. They probably have hiring advantages because they can offer perks like you know international travel for some of their uh, cost of some of their employees. And so there's so many advantages for being big, and, and also there is regulation specifically that 
uh, identifies banks as being systemically important, which means that there is an interest for banks to become and stay big. But the, the consequence of being big is that these banks are also very profitable. And so it's very hard to separate size from profitability in, in the banking sector. And you see that here in New Zealand, the large banks, they have, say, 12, 13% return on equity. The smaller banks, half of that. And so for them, they struggle or they have to work very hard to get their profits, whereas you know the larger banks are in a, in a very strong, in a strong position to create or have or maintain uh, profitability. So I think you know, if people complain about high profits at the large banks, I think they should be more aware of the fact that this is the this is the consequence of a banking system that worldwide benefits or you know helps the the larger banks. And so the alternative would be say, well, let we uh, shall we focus then on helping smaller banks? But that never went well. You know, we've seen small banks in Spain called Cajas de Ahorras, and um, these Cajas all went bankrupt because they were not very well led. And these were all very small banks. The problem with smaller banks tends to be that they are poorly governed and the management is not always up to speed with the latest technology and fads in banking. And so therefore they can be, you know, be very vulnerable. And also because they, you know, smaller banks tend to operate locally, they're much more sensitive to local collapses of the economy or local, you know, when everything in the local area goes pear-shaped, the bank will, will also fail. And that's exactly what we've seen in, in Spain, but also I think in the in-state banking system in the U.S., which was yep. also focusing, focusing very much on keeping banks small. And, you know, the U.S. is by far the country that has the, the largest numbers of banking crises. And that's, you know, it's very strongly associated with forcing banks to be small, which helps the populist vote. Unfortunately, the price for paying, you know, the price that the country pays for small banks is is steep in that it leads to more crisis. So, you know, my guess is here is that we should accept large being uh, banks being large, and the consequence of large banks is that they are more profitable. Well, it's fun too because again, I'm Canadian, go to grad school in the U.S., and one of the big research questions that had been in macro monetary banking was. Okay, why did the American banking system fall apart during the Great Depression and the Canadians just kept trucking along? How much of it was due to differences in how central banks approach things and how much is due to branch banking regulations in the U.S. that prevented concentration in the, in the American yep. market compared to Canada, which just had a similar setup to New Zealand where you've got a few large banks and maybe a few fringy bits. Yep. The greater concentration in the Canadian system and geographic dispersal which then is allowed means that you get when you get a shock that hits one state in the u.s well their their state banks all blow up yep. and in canada well they've got branches all over so if something goes pear-shaped in ontario well they've still got profits in other provinces and the whole system doesn't collapse so it can be a bit careful about what we wish for which is another theme that came through in your piece and i want to pick your brain about a couple of other other pieces while you're here it, oh, by the way, sure. can I say something about that? Yeah, please. So there's a great book by two authors called Columiris and Harvard. They wrote about that, Stable Banking yep. Systems. And it's fascinating because apparently it turns out that Canada, together with New Zealand and Australia, are the most stable banking system. So yes, you know, the choice is more or less, almost more or less like, you know, do we want a, an American-style or Spanish-style banking system with, you know, low profits and small smallness, or do we want a super stable system like the ones that Australia, New Zealand, and Canada have? Yeah, you pay for the smaller system one way or another, right? Yep. So it, 
They're talking now about deposit insurance. We have traditionally here, and this goes back to uh, when, okay, stepping back, I, w- I was an academic at Canterbury for a long time. When Rod Carr came in as our vice chancellor, the only thing that I knew about him was the, this great piece that he'd written as a deputy governor at the Reserve Bank on deposit insurance and how the system needed to be very clear that it would not bail out anybody, that it is caveat emptor, and that customers are going to be well-placed to, mm. you, know, you you weren't going to have the system falling over and you made it more likely for the system to fall over the more that you talked about having deposit insurance. So I'd enjoyed that. We're getting back into discussions about deposit insurance now with, instead of open banking resolution where the government has been worried that they'd still be seen as having risk of bailing out. I'm not quite sure that it's there that the, uh, OBR had looked reasonable to me. Coming back to the theme we were talking about earlier about regulation and bank profitability, I know that you've done some work looking at the effects of capitalization requirements on the headroom that banks want to keep for themselves. So just as a primer for for listeners, central banks require that banks maintain a certain amount of equity as capital rather than lending everything out. And investors in banks have to have a return on that equity. They have to get some, they have to have some reason for putting their money into banks compared to putting their money into other places. Where the Reserve Bank here has been talking a lot about increasing bank capitalization requirements, that would seem to then wind up requiring that the banks overshoot on how much capital they're going to keep because they never want to fall afoul of the new stricter guidelines, but that would necessarily drive up profits, right? If they have to compete for funds with other sectors, their nominal profits would, I would think, have to go up even if their return on equity stays constant because you've got more equity. Am I seeing this incorrectly? Well, not not really. What, you know, the thing is for these capital requirements, banks need to be profitable. Um, So they need to make profits so that they can add, you know, the the amounts that are not paying out in dividends, they can add it to their capital base. And so what you can see in the current proposal to tax profits is going to frustrate the intentions and the regulations of the Reserve Bank because the Reserve Bank wants banks to increase their capital ratios. And so if you then say, well, you know, we're going to tax, pro- we're going to tax profits away, if it works and not pass on to customers, then these banks are in a worse position to build their their capital buffers. So as a result, you know, it will lead to a delay. But more frustrating about that is that one way to increase capital ratios is to, you know, it's a ratio and you can move the denominator or shrink the denominator. Uh, That gives you a higher ratio, but shrinking the denominator in banking means in practice that banks will lend less to the productive economy. And so that's, if, you know, if the Reserve Bank would accept this idea of taxing profits, it would frustrate the building up of capital. So that's frustrating in terms of policy. But the response is going to be from sm- small and medium-sized enterprises on the way up to building up capital is to shrink or you know, withhold lending to the, the productive side of the economy. And, and that's exactly what you don't want, especially if there is a recession you know, ahead of us. Bryce, anything you'd want to add on that? Yes. The, the proposition that when profits go up, there should be a windfall tax is either principled or else it's um, predatory and opportunistic. If it's principled, the implication is that if profits go down, 
they should be subsidised. But that doesn't make any great sense to anyone. So there is a, a an agreement between Treasury and Inland Revenue about sound tax policy development processes. Mm. And that's exactly the, the framework in which this stuff should be uh, discussed and considered. But a, a populist approach of just taxing something if it goes up, if it became part of policy, would be a big signal to investors everywhere that the countries doing this aren't really to be trusted. So that will affect the cost of capital to the country through the foreign direct investment rules and the like. Because as, as has already been pointed out here, if something uh, puts up the costs or risks of doing business in New Zealand, then it's not going to be the foreigner who bears the cost of that. It's going to be the New Zealand customer and everyone and an user who finds that the service is more expensive than it would have been otherwise. So this proposal coming up in its ad hoc and populist manner just doesn't sound like a sound tax policy process. True. So yeah, no, you're right. And and what I can add to that is. I think that was a warning from the European Central Bank also, is that you know, now everything looks fine, you know, everything grows, and so, yeah, it's tempting to charge higher taxes, you know, who, you know, who should be worried about that? The problem is that these taxes and the collection thereof will probably happen in some point in the near future, like, say, next year. And that's kind of tricky, because next year, Europe is expecting to be in a recession, you know, and, and there's, you know, even if that were not true, there's high uncertainty about, you know, the economy going forward. So what you can have, and what is a bit of a risk here, is that at the point, at the moment that these taxes kick in, they make borrowing more expensive because the banks will pass that on to their customers. But, you know, making borrowing expensive in a time of recession is probably not something that you want. And then as a result of that, it will probably frustrate monetary policy. And that was a warning from the European Central Bank. It's like, you know, it may look fine now, but, you know, beware of what happens in the future if the economy, you know, which is always cyclic, if it's in a down cycle, down part of the cycle, it may frustrate monetary policy as well. So you know, it frustrates, as I just pointed out, with the capital requirements, it frustrates you know, prudential policy. And so there will be some tension between the governor and, and probably Grant Robertson. But there will be also these monetary impacts of that, which are you know, problematic. So if this is more than just a, an attempt by the current government to deflect attention from increasing interest rates, high inflation, high cost of living, then we would expect that they would have been getting policy papers from inland revenue assessed then through Treasury as part of the general tax policy process that would be laying out some of the pathways for this, what the risks are, how it's worked out elsewhere, how you could set it in regulation, what the timing might look like, There'd be an awful lot of back work that would have been undertaken, and it would have been surprising if nobody had, if we'd never heard of it, right? I suspect that none of that's been done, and that to me suggests that they've not been particularly serious about this, and that it is just well, a rhetorical push to divert attention. But we have had policy announcements that have come through on very little background work by officials. So hopefully, this is just a rhetoric thing rather than something they're serious about. Yeah, but even if it's rhetoric, it's potentially unsettling for inv- oh, yeah. investors worrying about what's the, the, the policy predictability in New Zealand. It's interesting to watch Grant Robertson operating here because he, he is probably not willing to impose these taxes 
and there's reasons for that. As I pointed out, the government is in a in cahoots with with the banks and with the general public to keep the system as it is, and just don't play too much with it. You know, the government needs the banks uh, to help out in bad times. I'm not so sure if Grant Robertson wants to change that relationship in in that banks will think about not cooperating next time, and so therefore he he's probably treading very carefully here and you hope that it will be a fad. My worry is a bit that other parties like the Green Party may use this to attract voters and at some point, you know, these voters may become influential in, for example, a coalition government. Yeah, these sorts of things do become kind of traps, right? So I'm reminded of how when Kiwibold was initially thought of in the back of a car at a point when Labour didn't expect that they were going to be winning and then they got tied to it when they did come into government and it wasn't actually something that they could deliver on, but everyone expected them to because they had had a lot of rhetoric around it. You might expect a similar kind of process if Julie Genter gets enough of her green supporters to buy into the idea that bank, uh, windfall taxes on banks are necessary and that becomes something that they can't back down from in any future coalition arrangements because it would seem unlikely that Labour could come in after the next election without the Greens as an official partner. Whether this would be a bottom line for them or not, I don't know, but it's it all gets into dangerous spots, right? I don't know, you know, see, you know, maybe the Greens are, are you know, of good faith and they think like, you know, something has to be done, but the consequences of a tax will be borne by, by working New Zealanders who pay for their mortgages and you know, as a result of this tax, will end up paying that tax through their mortgage rate, and so the, the you know the banks are more like like an intermediary that collects the tax for the government. But most of the tax you know revenues that the that the government wants will probably be passed on to customers. So she, right. and these are the weaker customers. You know, those that those people that have already paid off their mortgage, they don't worry. But the ones that just purchased the house not so long ago, they would not like to see their in- interest rates or the charges from the banks increase. Quickly, so there, you know, she promises something for for her voters, which will probably hurt her voters, you know, very hard. Which I think is kind of like tricky and risky. I agree, but think back on some of the rules that they'd put around non-bank lenders recently, right? So it's really easy for government to get itself into a spot where they don't listen to anybody who is warning them of exactly what will happen when the regulations are put in place, that the regs will wind up hurting those that they're trying to help. Then they put them in, and then they find out that, well, it was hitting banks and non-bank lenders, the the lending requirements that meant that people wound up having to document every coffee that they were buying, right? So you wind up in these political worlds where the real-world consequences are an afterthought, and then you find them out, and you have to backfill trying to fix the problem that you caused. You worry that... A windfall, you, you could get trapped rhetorically into a windfall tax on profits. And then as the consequences start falling, you get this spiral of regulation trying to stop banks from doing some of the things that are a natural response to that kind of a tax or trying to offset the effects in other ways rather than looking to the underlying problem that they'd caused. Yeah, but you know, that's, that's, I think a bit of speculation there. You know, my, my worry is more that the policies proposed will probably hurt those that will vote for it. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. And, and there's... You know, oh, I agree. That's why I wrote my piece in for Newsroom, is that, you know, be careful what you wish for. If you get this, you you know, 
and it's not that there's no examples and no research documenting this. This is well documented. This has happened. This, you know, the Bundesbank, the ECB, <coughs> now the IMF, they all noticed this. And we've seen these, you know, these great examples of populist banking systems which, you know, focus on small but not profitable. Fair enough, but they come at a very high cost to the population. I think we'll end it there. Thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Thank you, Martin. You're Thank welcome. you, Bryce. And thank you, listeners. Be sure to tune in next time. 